You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. And um, yeah, we'll, as we get things started here, as a few more people are rolling in, um, I'm excited for this to be the beginning of the Lenten season. So for those of you who are available to join us for Ash Wednesday, um, really glad that we were able to take the time to do that. And um you know, I know we talk about liturgy and explain liturgies um, pretty often here because of how diverse the background is of people here at Central. Um, how many of you guys grew up in traditions or have experience in traditions that are more liturgical or high holy traditions? That's like Catholic or Anglican or other mainline churches. Okay, awesome. So it's, I know it's a relatively small number of people um, overall in our church that quite a few of us have come from evangelical backgrounds. And um, so for those of you who did, it can often be really um, unusual the way that liturgies unfold and take place. Uh, I found them especially helpful as we've been meeting remotely for um, during COVID-19. And um, especially so because a lot of what the liturgies are designed to do is to unify us together as the church. So a lot of those things happen from a corporate level rather than a personal individual level. Um, and it's both, uh, of course, but that's something that I think is really present in the American church um, is this like kind of focus on individualism, particularly for those of us who spent time in evangelical churches where so much is focused on personal salvation um, and, and a personal relationship with God. Um, so the liturgies kind of help remind us that the things that we do um, are about community that we do together, not just on our own. And Lent is kind of both of those things because it does focus on kind of the communal aspect of what it means to be the church, um, but it also draws us into the personal confession and preparation of what it means to celebrate Easter and for, for Easter and the death and resurrection of Christ to be coming. Um, so we'll do some liturgy throughout this Lenten season. Um, but I'm really glad that you guys are here. Of course, as we're getting started, uh, I wanted to remind you that we'll be taking communion uh, here in the service. So if you need to grab elements, um, whatever you have around your home that's communion for us this morning, that is great. And um, um, nope, I had another important thought that I was thinking about, particularly with communion. Um, but we'll move on. I'll bring it up if I remember. Uh, so as we talk about liturgy in this Lenten season, um, I, I'm reminded particularly now of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, talks about, about cheap and costly grace. 
Uh, I think it's so important um, because uh, I'm reminded particularly in this last year with so much um, at the forefront of our culture with the Black Lives Matter movement, with watching um, injustice uh, happen throughout our world um, and watching kind of the partisan nature of not caring about sacrifice for the sake of others. Um, it really kind of draws me back to the difference of what, uh, what Bonhoeffer talks about in the church with cheap and costly grace. And um, in particular, it's um, the way that he characterizes how, um, how important confession is to what it means to be the church. And so um, for Bonhoeffer, um, cheap grace is that idea of giving forgiveness without us having to be involved in repentance at all. And for him, it was baptism um, without a connection to the church and church discipline. And it was taking communion without the church confessing together or absolving people of their sins without any personal confession there. Um, and it's why we get this gross, icky feeling inside of us when um, people tell those who have been marginalized that they're being too sensitive and that they just need to get over it because they're asking for forgiveness without any sense of confession. Um, they're asking for absolution to just move on without any recognition that things need to be different. So in light of this last year, I think that's especially helpful um, in this Lenten season. So the costly grace that Bonhoeffer talks about is a grace, um, a kind of connection with God that we seek over and over again. Um, he talks about it as a gift that has to be asked for, a door that must be knocked on over and over again. Um, it's a process that keeps happening, that we keep embodying. Um, and so in that light, um, I'd like to open us in prayer this morning um, with a liturgical prayer um, that sets the stage for what this Lenten season is and can be. Would you join me in prayer? Divine creator, when you first stirred the waters and breathed into the soul of the earth, all life was able to flourish. From birth to death, there was enough. But as evil and greed permeated the hearts of humanity, so began the interruptions of love's natural rhythms. We distance ourselves from our creaturely neighbors and began to see the land as little more than fields of profit. We've made ourselves strangers to our own home, neglecting the wild in us, forgetting our place among the whole of things. Renew us, O oh God, to right relationship with the earth, with our own bodies born from soil and water, with our neighbors who bear the worst consequences of our consumption and negligence. May we be the ones who mend what has been destroyed, who confront the powerful who plunder and leave barren, 
who desire transformation of our own hearts and practices, that life's abundance may be restored upon the earth and all creatures and creation may rest in your care. Amen. And so this morning, I'd like for us to share together in a short liturgy. Um, and this is a prayer of confession and uh, an assurance of pardon. Um, it's part of a more typical structure of, um, of more um, liturgical churches. And it's something that typically happens every single week in those church settings. Um, and it's particularly important, I think, as we prepare for communion and what it means to, um, to share in, in um, the kind of embodying of Christ together. Uh, a lot of churches take a pause from communion during this time in anticipation of Easter. And after Ash Wednesday, we'll no longer take communion. I don't think that's something that we should be doing here because this is such a connecting point. Um, uh, it's such a way that we get to embody being the church together. Um, and so I'm glad that we're continuing to celebrate communion throughout Lent. But um, historically, that is kind of a, a sign and reminder of um, what it means for us to prepare. Many of us in, our, in the past, or many traditions have called for fasting from different things, um, different ways of preparing ourselves for what it means for God to come into the world and be among us to celebrate the coming um, in the first place and the uh, bringing together of life and wholeness in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I'm going to share my screen here. And um, as usual, I'll read the parts not in bold and we'll pray together um, the portion in bold. Let's pray. Creative, passionate God, you delight to shape the world in beauty and harmony. You invite us to participate in the balance of creation. We grow in wisdom as our experience unfolds. We take good learning out of difficult situations, yet also find our well-meant endeavors leading to unintentional consequences. Too often we give in to temptation that disrupts the joyous, chaotic order of the universe. We cannot undo all our mistakes, but we can turn once more to the living presence of Jesus and find new ways to live and love each other and the earth. Do not let our hearts be fearful, but let us in silence acknowledge our sin and seek the forgiveness that restores your peace. Let's take a moment of silence together.
sisters and brothers, fellow travelers on the road to Easter, always remember that there is much more forgiveness in God than we could ever exhaust. Receive from God through the grace of Christ, the blessing of sins forgiven and a right relationship with stored. Sisters and brothers, in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks, Bob. Um, as Bob mentioned, we're gonna be taking communion today, um, even though it is Lent, our first Sunday of Lent. Um, so if you do have something nearby, I invite you um, to grab it um, like we often do here. And we, and if you feel so inclined, can share what you're using for communion this morning um, in the chat window. <clears throat> But it is the first Sunday of Lent, and as Bob mentioned um, a little earlier, that can mean a lot of different things depending on uh, how you were um, raised or what tradition you come from or what denomination you come from. Um, but we tend to hear it centrally, use it to remind um, ourselves of our mortality, of um, the humanity evident um, in the story of God and in our stories and in um, doing life together with one another. And in that way, I feel like communion is sort of a perfect um, example of how we um, come together and celebrate humanity. Um, so I'm going to just do a little uh, reading beforehand and then we'll take together. Um, so hear these words. With honesty and courage, God calls us to take account of evil and injustice, to consider it in community, to reflect inwardly, to pay attention in public. The love of God reveals, makes known, confronts and challenges complicities and cruelties, not for shame nor for guilt, but for deliverance and freedom, holding and being held accountable. The way of salvation is set before us. On this first Sunday of Lent, we remember that part of this season's invitation is to deepen into love that is just, that is transformative, that confronts all that keeps life from thriving. And so we open ourselves to discovery and change. We all have ways we are still unlearning evil, a lifelong process of healing from internalized oppression against ourselves disrupting narratives that justify our complicity with oppressive systems and struggling to find our way out of the seductive grips of power and domination. We take seriously the fact that this journey is shared, that we depend on others to help us grow and the accountability is a practice of love. So with that in mind, we practice communion as a dependence on each other, a reminder that we are one body and that in this act, we remind ourselves of the oneness of our community. Um, so I invite you to take the bread or the Cheez-Its or the walnuts and dried cherries, oatmeal, cucumber, lemonade, and Funyuns, that's a good one, Des, or Pop-Tarts, and remember the body of Christ broken for us. And likewise, the cup uh, that symbolizes the new covenant, uh, take um, when you are ready.
and may, th may through, may we through this Lenten season be reminded of our connectedness, our dependence on each other and our joint mission that we have as the people of God. Amen. Is this announcement time, y'all? All right. Um, hey, everyone. So just a couple of things this week. Um, we are starting Atheism for Lent on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock well, with, with Mission Hills Church. And there's a special Zoom link in the event page. And if you have any questions, you can contact Aaron. Um, we have a couple of blood drives coming up in April and May. So stay tuned for those. And um, as always, if there is anything that anybody needs, please contact leadership and uh, we're always here for you. I'll turn it over to you, Aaron. Thanks, May. Does anybody have any, any prayer requests or words of thanksgiving? Now is the time that we share such things, our joys and concerns. Um, you can unmute or you can uh, always put it in the chat column and I will do my best to see that and, and address it from there. Anybody this morning? Well, I want to take this moment and just, we haven't um, recognized uh, in prayer lately, I think, all the um, kind of the, the essential workers and, and frontline people that uh, in healthcare and in grocery stores and in, in all the other places in society that kind of keep things working and that have put themselves in harm's way, maybe as a result of having to, to support themselves. But nevertheless, uh, we wanna continue to recognize them and, and let's let's pray for them and, and uh, our community as we hopefully are reaching the, uh, the end of, uh, the worst part of the pandemic, I guess we could put it that way, um, but let's, let's pray. Loving God, we lift up all those in our community that are essential workers that are on the front lines that have uh, put themselves in harm's way to um, keep food flowing, to keep uh, healthcare uh, available. We pray for their safety and their well-being. We also pray for um, all those in our community that are getting vaccinated, that are um, that, that are, I guess, recovering from COVID as well. But we ask uh, and, and pray for continued well-being that we would, as a community, as a society, just um, continue to come out of this and uh, rebuild our lives. Give us wisdom, give us insight, um, spirit. We pray uh, as to how to best serve our neighbor uh, during these uniquely difficult times. How can we help people rebuild and uh, be part of the solutions uh, moving forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And with that, Max, I think I'll turn it over to you. Sure, thanks. Um, so today we're gonna get um, a little bit creative, uh, no, uh, no pressure on you, but um, if you want to, um, I'm going to invite you um, to engage in sort of a meditative practice in which you can write a couple words or write a couple lines, a couple sentences, or just think them. You can put them in the chat, um, but it's a practice of engaging as a Lenten practice um, with some themes and ideas that help us um, 
internalize and think through how we are coming um, towards some of these topics and themes um, and help us process them. So if you find that to be a helpful tool, I'm gonna encourage you to do that in just a moment. Um, but one of our favorite liturgy resources in Fleshed uh, is, in, is encouraging people. They actually set, I'm gonna, um, they set a, a goal um, for this Lent to increase people's understandings and build pathways to collective flourishing. And if that sounds familiar, we often talk about in this community and in this church, how um, the way of God and the understanding of Christianity, if nothing else, um, should point us towards human flourishing and help us um, turn away from things or end things and fight against things that oppose human flourishing. <clears throat> so um, very much aligns with some of the morals and um, beliefs that we hold dear in this community. So um, I'm just going to give you a little intro to it, and then um, I'm going to do a short reading, and then I'm going to read it a couple times so we can reflect, sort of like a Lectio Divina process, but I'm actually going to invite you to, to write something down um, if, it, if it's helpful for you. So first of all, the theme. Um, this season's theme will be pathways to collective flourishing. How are these pathways created? How do we know if, when we are on them or blockading them, what is needed to travel them and what can we expect to encounter along the way? As the divine companions us towards transformation, she asks us for companionship in return, a love that is reciprocal in practice and belief. The season of Lent is an invitation to pay attention to when and where and how that ask is made of us. In recognition that we have not been left to the journey, the pathway to collective flourishing alone, we enter this season seeking to faithfully accompany as we are accompanied. In this fragile era, weary with losses and violences of so many kinds, we invite you to join us in a simple practice, daily writing of short poems. So if you really like doing this too, I, I can send out some resources and you can make this into a, a sort of a daily practice. Um, but you can write a poem. They say you can do a three line poem, three word poem, um, really just to get you thinking. So with that all said, the word that we're gonna be focusing on this morning is attention. So what they say about attention. On pathways to collective flourishing, what? needs attention. Do you treat your own attention like the limited resource that it is? How do you decide what deserves your attention and what wastes it? What structures and powers shape collective attention? Who treats your attention with respect? Who exploits it? How is intentional attention a practice of love, of resistance, of prayer. So we're just gonna spend a couple minutes reflecting, meditating, paying attention um, to what you feel, what it brings up to you. And then you can write some notes down. Again, you can share them in the chat if you feel so led, you can just keep them for you. You can just think about it. Um, and whatever it is, we will offer it as a prayer, a confession and um, an observation um, to whatever you need today. So that's, that's how it's going to be. I'm going to read it again, okay? And then we're going to just take a couple moments in silence, and then I'll read it one more time. 
on pathways to collective flourishing, what needs attention? Do you treat your own attention like the limited resource it is? How do you decide what deserves your attention and what wastes it? What structures and powers shape collective attention? Who treats your attention with respect? Who exploits it? How is intentional attention a practice of love, of resistance, of prayer? On pathways to collective flourishing, what needs attention? Do you treat your own attention like the limited resource it is? How do you decide what deserves your attention and what wastes it? What structures and powers shape collective attention? Who treats your attention with respect? Who exploits it? How is intentional attention a practice of love, of resistance, of prayer? We'll just take another minute for you to meditate, for you to pray, for you to write down what comes to you. Yeah, thank you, Andrew and Jason. If you feel um, so led, and um, please feel free to um, drop in the chat what you're processing, what helps you flesh out um, what's in your head, or you can just keep it for you. <clears throat> And whether you choose uh, to write it down or think about it and you've um, already meditated on it, I hope um, that it can be a reminder for today that throughout the day you will notice your attention, right? What you're giving it to, what is hard to give your attention to when it seems so thin and short um, and when it seems easy. Um, and that can be our meditation through today. Um, 
And whenever it feels powerful and helpful to do during this Lenten season, um, as we continue to find ways to focus on human flourishing. And that first and foremost usually needs to be our human flourishing um, so we can help others. These are really great comments, everyone sharing. Thanks, Des. Um, may it be our prayer and the way we live each day. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Max. So as a segue, I guess, into, uh, into my talk today, over the last month, we've been giving our attention to a comparative religion study here. We've looked at Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam as we think that um, giving attention to other faith traditions, other points of view is always an important value to practice, right? Uh, this is a community that hopefully uh, does that really well. I think we do. Um, so in that spirit of looking at and giving attention to other faith traditions, we're going to look at Christianity too. <laughs> uh, today, I think Jason, Jason, I think you are the one who asked a few weeks ago if we could also look at Christianity uh, in this comparative religion study. Yeah, thumbs up, good. Uh, so that's why we're doing it. And it's a good idea. Um, you know, some, some might say, oh, we're always talking about Christianity, aren't we? Well, yeah, in a way, but um, we're going to go a little a little, um, maybe a little more formal today into it. Um, you know, this is a good day to do it because it's the first Sunday of Lent, the season when traditionally the church fasts and meditates on uh, what it means to be a Christ follower. So it's a good time for us to ask, what is Christianity? Traditionally speaking, I guess, what is Christianity? I personally have a more non-traditional <laughs> and mystical understanding of Christianity now uh, that runs in the radical theology tradition. Christianity has always lended itself, lent itself, if you will, uh, to such mysticism. But today I want to focus more on what a traditional understanding of Christianity is to give us more of a foundational understanding of it, if you will. It, it goes without saying that there are many different and non-traditional definitions of Christianity out there, and time would not permit us to look at each. Many today would say that Christianity isn't a religion at all. It's a relationship with God. Maybe you've heard that before. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. Maybe you've said that before, maybe sometime in the past. Guilty, right? Uh, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. You've probably, you've probably heard that. But that's recently, that, that's a relatively recent invention uh, and a very Western and evangelical one. It's also the case that many Christians, specifically evangelicals, and would define Christianity as simply believing in Jesus. But whether or not one attends church, whether or not one's been baptized or even lives a certain way is not really what Christianity is for, I think, millions of professing Christians today. For them, Christianity is simply believing that Jesus is Lord or simply praying the sinner's prayer and inviting Jesus into your heart, which are ideas that again are only that are, are relatively recent those ideas are really only about 100 years old but for most of church history for for the vast majority of church history up when, uh, up until the last couple hundred years or so meaning basically from the third century ad to the 19th century so a span of about 1600 years if you were to ask a christian 
what is Christianity? The answer you probably would get, regardless if you asked a, a Catholic, a Protestant, or someone from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, for most of church history, if you, would have, if you would have asked a Christian, what is Christianity? The answer you probably would have gotten is something like Christianity is defined by the sacraments and the creeds, meaning primarily the Nicene Creed and the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those who confess the creed and who participated in the sacraments, which could only be administered by the church, which means you actually had to attend church, <laughs> Uh, really, only those who did these things could be considered Christian for most of church history. Most Christians for most of church history would have found the contemporary ideas of it's not a religion, it's a relationship, uh, and it's all about me and my heart and what I believe about Jesus in my heart and whether or not I ever get baptized uh, or go to church, uh, you know, all that's beside the point. Most Christians for most of church history would have found that definition of Christianity to be totally alien and to be quite frank, non-Christian. And yet they still would have believed back then that theological orthodoxy, meaning what you believe about God, Jesus, and the Bible mattered and mattered a great deal. Meaning for most of church history, Christianity was defined as being about believing the right things about God, Jesus, and the Bible. And that really hasn't changed since at least the fourth century and the creation of what's called the Nicene Creed, which was literally created to define Christianity and unite the church on beliefs at a time when the church was not united. A creed is a statement of belief. Creed just means belief. So let's look at it now. Let's look at the Nicene Creed. And this is something that millions of Christians still recite every single Sunday at church. It says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in one Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets, I believe in one holy Catholic, meaning Catholic, meaning universal, uh, universal church and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's the Nicene Creed. And what many would say even today is Christianity, period. <laughs> That's what they say, would say is Christianity which means if you don't believe or confess what the creed says, you are not a Christian. Now, to be clear, to be absolutely clear, I have nothing against believing in the things in the creed. It's just that if you want to talk about what Christianity originally was, it was not a system of doctrinal beliefs about the Trinity, the virgin birth, or the divinity of Jesus, or atoning sacrifices, but Christianity was defined originally as living like Christ in the world. In fact, the name Christian 
simply means little Christs. It means to be like Jesus. And to be clear, Jesus himself did not define being like him as having anything to do with creeds and theological orthodoxy. To be a disciple of Jesus in his day, to be Jesus's disciple in his day, one only had to follow him and his ways. And according to Jesus himself in Luke 4, his ways were to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for all who mourn, period, end quote. If you were going to be his disciple, that's what you were going to be doing because that's what he was doing. Theological orthodoxy had nothing to do with it. Nowhere in the gospels do you find Jesus teaching his disciples about the virgin birth or the Trinity or the nature of his divinity or the idea that his future death will somehow be a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Nowhere does Jesus talk about any of that stuff. And I'm, I'm convinced that he, he must not have thought about it himself very much or if at all. So the next time someone tells you that Christianity is about theological orthodoxy and adhering to creeds, remind them that to be Jesus's disciple in his day had nothing to do with any of that. Remind them that Jesus tells us exactly what it means to be his follower in places like John 15, where he says, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this is my commandment, that you love one another. Or consider Matthew 22, all of the law and the prophets, all of scripture is summarized in these two commands, to love God and love others. And you, you can't practice the former without practicing the latter. In other words, it's all about loving others. Or consider Matthew 25. Here Jesus says that only those who feed the hungry, who clothe the naked, who visit the sick and those in prison, who care for the least, who care for the least of these, only these are my disciple. Only these are the righteous. Only these are quote unquote Christians. No mention is made of having the correct beliefs about virgin births and, and, and the Bible or resurrections or atoning sacrifices, all, of, all that is required is love. That's it, love, pure love, especially love for the least of these, those on the margins, those who are the oppressed, right? Love, you could say, in Christianity is the only true theological orthodoxy. Love is orthodoxy. So that's one of the major defining aspects of, Christ, of traditional Christianity. Let's call it that. This is love, this, this teaching on love and the religionlessness of this idea of love, pure love, is one of the defining aspects of original Christianity. And it, and it led early Christians who were all Jews. That's important to remember. All, all the early Christians were Jews. The first Christians, you might say. It led these Jews to do some, some astonishing things, actually. It led them to let go of a lot of their overt religiosity. It led them to let go of practicing circumcision, keeping kosher, observing the Sabbath, going to temple, and other parts of the Jewish law and customs. Now, imagine what a deconstruction that was for them. Imagine what it would have taken for them to let all that stuff go. Early Christians believed these laws and customs were now spiritualized in Christ, spiritualized into practicing love and justice itself. They still had religious customs, right? Like the Lord's Supper and baptism and weekly assemblies, which called the church. But the emphasis was totally different now. And it's important to understand Christianity didn't just 
deconstruct or redefine religion itself, but also it deconstructed and redefined the social and moral categories of the day. Friedrich Nietzsche, of all people, uh, noticed this. And he argued that the thing that really defined Christianity and made it and what made it unique was what he called a slave morality, slave morality. Uh, in the ancient Near East and really throughout much of the ancient Mediterranean world, it was widely believed both inside and outside of, again, uh, Judea or within inside and outside uh, the Middle East, it was widely believed that moral categories like goodness and righteousness and godliness were defined by wealth and power. In other words, might literally made right back then. It was universally believed God and the gods were on the side of the wealthy and the powerful, and they were rich and powerful because of divine providence. This might be called a, a slave master morality or a master morality. However, Jews and early Christians who were early Christians were all Jews again, remember that, uh, they were, th these early Christians were all part of the peasant class or what we might call the slave class. They were, and they were able to flip the script on this, on this understanding of, of moral categories. They were able to fuse words like rich and powerful with words like evil, unjust and violent. Likewise, they were able to fuse words like poor and powerless with words like godly, holy, righteous, and just. This, this was a profound reversal a profound reversal in both the moral and religious imagination of the day. And it's, and it's not hard to understand how this might have happened. Remember, the Israelites were an oppressed people for much of their history, including at the time of Christianity's inception, the first century, when Israel was, of course, under Roman occupation. So early Christians, who again were, were mostly part of the underclass, were able to flip the script and argue that the God revealed in the humble and suffering Christ was not on the side of the rich and powerful, but on the side of the poor and powerless. And this is what really defined Christianity back then originally early on. It's not it not only deconstructed Christianity, therefore not only deconstructed rigid and oppressive religious structures, but also the oppressive social order that was tied into the religious structure. It was all related. And, and so Christianity was a comprehensive, holistic, and radical redefining of the cosmological order, you could say. But what this means to me, more than anything else, is that we European Christians, for the most part European Christians, uh, in order to understand all this, we must first decolonize our reading of the gospel and hear it as a first century Jewish peasant would. <laughs> That's really hard to do. And I think the only way we can come close to that today is by listening to black readings of the gospel, queer readings of the gospel, feminist readings of the gospel, and other similar readings from the margins. Only oppressed and marginalized communities, I believe, can really unlock the scriptures for the rest of us. It's really important to understand just how much the gospel was hijacked and colonized. The gospel was colonized, you could say, by European Christians since at least the time of Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. That's where the trouble really began in, in a lot of scholars' minds, Emperor Constantine being the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire and the one that really made it the state religion and the one who really merged the church with the state powers of Europe, with the monarchy, you could say. The papacy essentially became a monarchy and, and militarized essentially as well. Basically, the church and the monarchies of Europe 
for centuries, for 1600 years, or maybe not that long, maybe 1500 years, the, 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 the church and the monarchies took a story that was about liberation and justice for the poor and powerless and converted it into a story that subjugated the poor and the powerless while enriching the rich and empowering the powerful, meaning the monarchies and the papacy of, of Europe. It's really a stunning turnaround. It's really stunning. And, and we see this traditional European reading, this colonized reading of the gospel on full display today in American evangelicalism, who really are the, the tradition that inherited this European colonized reading. The great theologian, Rain Wilson, AKA Dwight Schrute, <laughs> put it this way when he once tweeted, the metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from being a humble servant of the abject poor to being a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity, theology, limited government, and fierce nationalism is truly the strangest transformation in human history. He's talking about how people with privilege and power have for centuries colonized the gospel and completely altered it beyond recognition. And this has been the case since at least the fourth century in Emperor Constantine. But the fact is Christianity in its original and true form was a radically subversive message of liberation and justice for the poor and a message about how true religion is about love, pure love, especially for those on the margins. And, and these two subversive ideas, this, this deconstruction, this simultaneous deconstruction of both religion and the social order are really one and the same thing. And this is really Christianity's foundational insight. Christianity really merged the spiritual and the social in this way. And this is really what defined Christianity early on, and I believe still does. And that's what we are about recapturing here at Central and what other really good, I would say, progressive Christian communities uh, are doing today. So this is how I define Christianity. This is what I think Christianity is. And now I'd like to hear from, from all of you. Uh, I'd like to hear you know, what you think about all that, what I just said. And, and I'd, I'd like to hear what Christianity is for you. How do you define Christianity? What is it, what, what, what is it, uh, what is it to you? Does anybody want to speak to that? Did you like my definition? Did you not like my definition? <laughs> Does it work for you? Yeah, I kind of related to um, when you said Jesus said on this, hang all the law and the prophets to um, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That to me sums up Christianity in a nutshell. Um, just being led to be of service when you can, you know. It's not complicated, really. <laughs> I think that's one of the things I wanted to say that in, in a sense, those of us have gone, who have gone from fundamentalism and even, or evangelicalism to where we're at now, in a sense, we've realized that this is really not a complicated religion. I mean, it, it really isn't. Uh, you know, we certainly can have different beliefs and those can be beautiful and diverse and there can be a kind of beauty to that complication. But the essence of saying that ultimately it's about love and justice, you know, and, and truth and one's innermost being, that is really not complicated. Mm. Didn't Paul say the simplicity of the gospel confuses man, confounds man to that? Well, <laughs> Paul said that, that the gospel comes across as foolishness and nonsense to both Jew and Greek alike. And, uh, and, and he said that because the prevailing wisdom of the day really was that, you know, God is all powerful and almighty and that, 
you know, God is on the side of the rich and the powerful. And here comes Christianity saying, no, God is crucified. God is, is a humble and, and suffering servant in the world. God himself is, is crucified um, and is on the side of the poor and the powerless. And that just blew people's minds who, again, were kind of aligned with that idea that God or the gods were on the side of the power, powerful and, and the rich and the mighty and that God himself was rich and mighty. And Christ is the antithesis of that. So Paul was remarking that that is foolishness and nonsense to the first century mind. And he was absolutely right. But it's foolishness and nonsense to a lot of people today, too, to say that God is weak and powerless and is on the side of the weak and the powerless. Uh, that's, that's what Paul was remarking about in my interpretation. Good stuff, Randy. Um, other, other thoughts? Yeah, more and more, I feel like, and not just because I toy around with atheism, but that Christianity is not for me. And I don't, yeah, I don't mean like belief wise. I just mean, I was having deep thoughts in the shower uh, yesterday. And I was thinking that, you know, I'm like a rich land baron imperialist. I'm a, I'm a, I get my, you know, toys built by the hands of poor Chinese people. I can pick any kind of food I want and uh, have somebody make it for me. You know, I'm like a rich Roman or whatever you want to call it. And this religion is not really, it's not for me. You know, it's yeah, not, I, I don't mean like, it's not like I don't want it. I just mean that yeah. it's not designed for me. <laughs> I think that's absolutely correct. I think that's the right approach. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason why to be clear, I've gotten into this kind of mystical tradition called radical theology, and I think it is kind of a mystical tradition, is because ultimately it recognizes that in a way we're all poor and powerless in the sense that we, in the face of death and the abyss of unknowing, um, live as in, in a kind of state of depravity, you could say, or in a state of being you know, poor and, and wanting and, and we're full of lack. And that ultimately, in a, in a way, we can all relate to that part of Christianity and the suffering and crucified God. Um, but you're right, Jason, in saying that ultimately, this, this religion was a religion of the poor and powerless, created by the poor and powerless, for the poor and powerless. You're right. Uh, and we are not, by and large, as the wealthiest nation in human history, you could say, uh, part of that crew. But in essence, we are, we are recognizing that and honoring that. And um, that's why we have such a focus and, on social justice and why communities like Central have such a focus on social justice is because uh, we are trying to honor what Christianity really is. But yeah, thanks, Jason. Other thoughts? Max, could you say more about that? Yeah, I was just going to say, I put it in the chat, but that's, I mean, it's a really, you raise a really good point, um, Jason, in that it's like, just how that, how quickly when Christianity became embraced, at least the power of Christianity became recognized by those in power, how quickly it was co-opted from a, you know, whenever we talk about poorness and Aaron I think this is part of what you were mentioning whenever we talk about like poverty and being poor and powerless really that's just spiritual so it's okay that I you know have all this power and I have hoarded these treasures and and I'm telling you my servants you don't ask for real freedom it's freedom in Christ right so it's like it just became very quickly and I get that some of the New Testament 
clearly has some of those themes because I think right off the bat, they're already, I'm thinking more of like Paul's letters, the, <clears throat> excuse me, they're already dealing with all the ways that these churches and these people had embraced this message and been like, oh, okay, so it's spiritual poverty. And um, I'm thinking too, like the Beatitudes and like the Sermon on the Mount and how, um, depending on the book and depending on the translation, that gets, um, it gets translated as, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit rather than blessed are the poor. Um, and although that might seem like not a huge difference, that can be a gigantic difference, right? When the those of us who have privilege and those of us who have like more power in society and especially back then say, well, it's not, the gospel is not about lifting you out of poverty. The gospel is not about giving you actual freedom, you silly servants. Like it's about um, freedom internally. So you can pray and feel free and you can have richness of spirit, but no, I'm not paying you anymore. And I'm not giving you any more food. Please go back outside and sleep. Right? Like it's like so quickly, this little, <laughs> this, what now seems so normal to so many of us, it's like, oh yeah, poor of spirit. And oh yeah. 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 And I, I would, I would say that even an evangelical understanding of spiritual poverty isn't really spiritual poverty. They, right. they actually believe in a kind of spiritual health and wealth. They, they believe that Jesus actually made them rich spiritually by giving them heaven and mansions on high and an eternal assurance and the right. promise of a good life now, if they just jump through all the right religious hoops and believe the right things that God will be there to make everything okay. Their spiritual poverty is, is actually a kind of spiritual wealth, just like the rest of their capitalistic, you know, <laughs> theology. So they wouldn't even buy into spiritual poverty in my, in my definition of spiritual poverty. But yeah, you raise a good point, Max. They, they spiritualize the idea of liberation and, and turn it and take it away from being an actual kind of economic, social, and political liberation and turn it into simply, hey, you're liberated in Christ from hell. You don't have to go to hell anymore. You're, you're liberated in Christ from God's judgment. Yeah. Um, and that should be enough for you. Why isn't that enough for you? Well, they have all this, you know, wealth and are hoarding it and believe God blessed them with it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Abs that's absolutely the case. Even and it's even between Jesus and Paul, right? Even in that short span, yes. that they think is at minimum thirty years difference between the two. Like even within that, it goes from Jesus literally like feeding all these people who are so hungry, right? It's like this is literal feeding. This is literal food. This is fish. This is loaves. Please come. Literal healing, like the story is to, you know what, Jesus is just going to feed us spiritually and Jesus is going to heal our hearts spiritually. Like not, not, a, none of this miracle mumbo jumbo, like, and it's just, it's just amazing how quickly <laughs> those who have the microphone <laughs> twist those words. That's all just got me thinking. Yeah, it's good stuff. Other, other thoughts may. Yeah. It's just so easy to, to have everything fit your narrative. Um, and when you were talking today, I was, I was writing down and I just wrote power, Jesus, poor, evangelical rules and powerful. Again, we have such, it was such an interesting, um, talk that you gave today because it made so much sense to me on why a lot of evangelical Christians constantly contradict themselves. It's because they are stuck in the middle of we are so persecuted. Christians are so persecuted, but yet we have all the wealth and the power and we want this to be God's country. So it, it, 
because that was such a, a strange thing for me for so long. I'm like, no, you're actually contradicting yourself in the same sentence. Like, I don't you don't you see? Um, but it does make a lot of sense. Like as you talked and broke broke it down today of just how I mean, how the microphone, as Max said, you know, whoever has the microphone makes the rules. And it just it made so much sense how they literally don't understand that they're contradicting themselves because anything that they want, they can back up with the Bible and it just promotes their own narrative. So anyway, it's just a reflection. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, thanks, thanks, mate. And I think the common theme you're talking about and that Max and, and Jason were talking about, you know, is, you know, really what we're talking about is decolonizing our reading of the gospel and understanding that we have, we have inherited a colonized reading that comes from our, frankly, evangelical, and for the most part, uh, most people here, a European evangelical background that, that, that is absolutely rooted in power structures. Like you'd say, May, it is, it is about power, sustaining power and, and, you know, maintaining power, right? And, and making sure we have it and other people don't. And, and once you understand that, once you understand that your reading is, is, is a colonized reading, um, that is fundamentally what deconstruction is, is decolonizing your reading of the gospel and attempting to see it through the eyes of, of frankly, those who it was originally written for, the poor and the powerless and the marginalized. And once you can do that, um, you have really kind of been set free from something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's really what deconstruction is. It's decolonizing your reading. I think something that um, <clears throat> another simple phrase that's helped me with all this is, um, and it, it helped me in college when I was going to a very conservative university. Um, I had a one professor though really focused a lot on um, how the gospels talk about Jesus as the servant king, which um, is like obviously the two opposites together, but focusing on how the reason that Jesus is king is because he is servant and those things can't be. So, so even from the most, even if you look at that from like a conservative evangelical place, like I hope that when, you know, my even like more conservative evangelical friends and family talk about Jesus as king, I hope that they're talking about Jesus as a servant first. Um, they're so not. I don't know. They're not. <laughs> uh, no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. But, but that's that's the way that when you when I think about where I've come from, a more conservative place, and where I am now, I think one of the few threads is that phrase, Jesus, yeah. the servant king. So yeah, no, that's powerful, Corey. Um, Jesus is a crucified peasant, but he's king of mm -hmm. kings. What does it mean to say that the king of kings is a crucified peasant? If, that's, mm -hmm. if that doesn't radicalize your theology, <laughs> if, if, if that idea that the, the king of kings and lord of lords is a crucified peasant, if that doesn't make you rethink you know, your power structures and what you think power is, uh, you know, and what you think Christianity is, I don't know what will. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is a crucified peasant. Wow. And uh, what, what's interesting is that professor I had who, um, who that was kind of his uh, thesis for all the classes he taught. Um, he was, he was one of the most gentle, soft theologians. He was so, he was a kind man who said, maybe, and I don't know. And um, you know, still fit within a, a evangelical place, but it, it's like, it, it just meant a lot to me that he, his posture towards teaching the gospel really reflected um, his own thesis of the gospel, which is Jesus, the servant King, that 
it, that it's not about having it right or having it having a hard nose about it. It, it was a, a really soft, open-handed um, yeah. teaching. So, you know, that, that phrase, yeah, it was a physical, literal um, practice that he was doing in his own teaching. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. We have to, we have to remember the reason why the gospel really functioned as a thumb in the eye uh, of the power structures of the first century world, including the Roman, the Ro Roman power structures and those in Judea. To say that that a crucified peasant is really king of kings and lord of lords, when that title king of kings and lord of lords is really exclusively set aside for Caesar and Caesar alone, that was a way of poking fun at, critiquing, deconstructing, you know, the whole idea of you know power in the first century world. It was it was a way of mocking, you could say, those power structures. A crucified peasant is king of kings and lord of lords. Caesar isn't lord. A crucified peasant is. That was the way the poor and the marginalized, you know, kind of got their, got back at those power structures and redefined power in, in a kingdom way. So yeah, that's good stuff, Corey. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, one of the things that's continually hard for me in my faith, having come out of evangelicalism and feeling like more comfortable with where I am in my faith and like my faith is more enlightened than it has been is that like I have to remember at the same time that my entire life and way of being is is kind of lifted up by places of privilege I hold and particularly that I'm part of the biggest most powerful empire that's ever existed in the history of the world and so like the message of Jesus has to be uncomfortable to me. Like if we're comfortable and complacent with where we have arrived in our message of Jesus, you know, it looks different, but I don't know how to kind of rectify that or like what it ultimately looks like. I just, I'm convinced that if we're ever comfortable with the message of Jesus, then we're probably not reading it fully. Um, I don't know what that means entirely. I just, uh, yeah, I, I see in myself a lot of complacency with the way things are and enjoyment out of being able to be where I am living in Los Angeles, you know, able to live and, you know, and also able to ignore the problems of poverty and my uncomfortability around homeless people and unwillingness to do more to engage some of the issues that we talk about all the time here at Central. It's like, uh, I'm continually reminded of how much I'm still being challenged by the story of Jesus. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bob. Lakin asked in the chat column if I would speak more about the relationship between deconstruction and decolonization. Um, she says she's ruminating on this because coming from many black churches, not limited to, but especially pre the last 50 years, evangelicalism looks a lot differently than white evangelicalism. So you're talking about black evangelicalism as compared to white evangelicalism looking very different. Um, don't get me wrong. It's, she says, I don't, uh, I lost, it's hard for me to scroll down. Don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of crossover. Okay, yeah. But even as you see with political ideation, black churches, generally speaking, tend to focus more on helping the oppressed. Yeah. So 
here, here, the white pastor is going to talk about what it means to be, you know, a black evangelical. That's not very helpful, probably. But, but you, but you point out, you know, that fact that, you know, the the even the black evangelical reading of the gospel tends to be focused on themes of liberation and justice. I think you're pointing that out, and that is something that is definitely more endemic to black conservative evangelical churches than your standard white middle class affluent evangelical church. You're just not going to find that same that same message on liberation and exodus and, and justice, um, you know, even though both are considerably theologically, you know, conservatively the, theologically the same in some ways, right? Um, so deconstruction and Jalen Livingston actually is a good friend of ours. He and I get into he, great conversations about what deconstruction might look like in a black evangelical church. And he's not even sure what that would look like. And, and frankly, there's been a lot of pushback against, frankly, white progressive deconstruction as being inherently disempowering for black communities because the idea of there being an actual existent God who is powerful enough to liberate his people, like the black church historically has relied on that God to empower them and, and to be a source of empowerment. And when white, even, white former evangelicals you know, progressive Christians come along and say, hey, maybe that God doesn't really exist, you know, and maybe God isn't a being at all. Maybe God's not all powerful. Suddenly, um, you know, black Christians begin to feel like you're, hey, white progressive person, you're taking away the source of a lot of our power now. And Jalen has, has said to me in the past, he's like getting, getting the black church to understand that ultimately that even like progressive deconstruction can be a source of personal empowerment. Um, to be set free from narratives and religious ideas that ultimately, you know, are oppressive. That's hard to do. And, and Jalen would would agree that they're, they're, that that ultimately progressive, what we'd say post-evangelical deconstruction is liberating and can be liberating for the black community. He's very dubious about uh, about how that happens in black churches. And so I'm trying to answer your question, Lincoln. Um, it's a very complicated situation. Uh, deconstruction looks different in the black church than it does in a white church to be perfectly frank um because of privilege and power um so i i, I don't know how else to address that max you're nodding i mean do you feel like um does anybody else want to respond to that or add to that did i say anything worth saying i don't know i was just gonna say yeah it's a, and it's a phenomenal question and yeah jalen too i came to mind in some of those conversations i mean i, I put in the chat and it's not very articulate <clears throat> but just the idea that it's like, because when you're naming the different congregations too, I'm thinking of they're very white affluent um, mainline denominations that in some ways like have tried to go all in on the very socially progressive, politically progressive, but even, even those that I'm thinking of like have enormous amounts of wealth and like it, there's, there's, there's a power differential and that when we deconstruct, there's multiple layers of saying, are we deconstructing our theologies? Like in which part of our theologies? Are we deconstructing our sociologies? Like, are we deconstructing privilege? Um, which, I mean, I, I'm picturing like four circles of a Venn diagram with like yeah. a mapping thing in the middle. There, it, it's, it gets really complicated because there's so many components of Christianity today. And especially within the black church, like I would say, the culture, I mean, I, I think the South in general, white churches or black churches, because culture is so important in different parts of the country where some of the biggest um, 
the biggest churches of, of like um, some of these traditions um, are located, there's this rich history of, well, you have to go to church. Like you are born into the church. You are, Christendom still exists. So it's like, you don't have, a, it isn't as intellectual um, as I think we out here in California engage with it, right? Because it's like, if you're in California, you go to church, that's a choice. Like, <laughs> you don't, you don't have to be in LA. You don't have to go to church if you're born in LA, right? Like most people don't. Um, I, I guess I'm just naming that that's very different when there's a cultural Christianity baked into your tradition and your family and your identity. And I think especially for many black churches, that cultural identity was shaped around liberation. And like you mentioned, and like the gospel is life-giving, the gospel is uplifting, the gospel is good news to the marginalized. Um, and, and you do, why would you want to deconstruct that part? I think yeah. it's a great question to ask. Sorry, that was a lot. No, it's it's good. It's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, and Andre Henry wrestles with this too, uh, where he realizes that black liberation theology is needs to be respected. Well, you know, <laughs> deconstruction and uh, other, you know, the, what we would say the death of God uh, is is also valid and. Um, there are, I, I, I don't, I wish I knew of more black liberations theologies that are, that uh, embrace kind of a kind of like atheism, but you know, that's kind of antithetical to theology in most people's minds. <laughs> there isn't an atheistic theology of black liberation perhaps, uh, but there, I'm trying to, you know, honestly, Jalen is trying to explore that to be perfectly honest. And I think Andre Henry in some ways is exploring that. Um, you know, um, I've heard of black pessimism as an actual school of thought, as kind of embracing that, you know, the, the death of the white God, the death of the white Jesus has to occur in order for black liberation to be fully realized, even in a religious context. The question for a lot of black Christians is, how has our reading of the gospel been influenced by white supremacy? How, how do we have internal white, internalized white supremacy with our, with, with our church and with our understanding of the gospel? Because I think that's a real concern for them. Um, and, and so, yeah, again, you know, these are questions that really only black Christians can answer, um, and, and deal with. We can't, we can't be the guides on that really. Um, those are, those are stories they've got to work out in their own communities. And I think some, and some are, um, anyway, uh, other thoughts today before we conclude. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks for being here, everybody. Uh, with that, I guess we'll officially conclude our time together. Always hang out and chat if you'd like, but go in peace. And uh, we'll see you see next week. Mm -hmm. Hey, May. Uh